When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Foundation and Podcast, the officially unofficial podcast for Foundation on Apple TV+. This week, we're covering Season 1, Episode 3, titled The Mathematician's Ghost. Respect and enjoy the podcast. All right, Aaron. Uh, what'd you think of The Mathematician's Ghost? I really like this episode. I, I, I'm still kind of like keeping my guard up. Because you know the, this this show did receive some mixed reviews from reviews from the critics, but I'm starting to think that like Seppenwall is still haunting. You. Yeah, the the television critics' ghost is looming large <laughs> over these proceedings, and uh, but I'm starting to feel a lot more confident that like I, I'm just a lot more receptive to this type of storytelling, like this kind of episode where it just spends a lot of time dealing with like the implications of a certain type of governance and like the the. Um, like like how the art and the ritual and all that stuff kind of reinforces like this peaceful transfer of power. Uh, like what is what is the experience of like living this life that's a singular life, but it's also the same life as 12, uh, 11 people to live before you and that you're about to like accept your death and, and how this was like stuff that like the first Cleon obsessed about. I saw I thought that stuff was really, really fascinating and interesting. And I'm so glad and it's it's such a great way to tell the story of like an empire's decline too mm-hmm. that like you know what was the old man finally figured out something profound to say in his last hours of his life and then his teenage punk descendant wipes it away because he thinks it's baby stuff like i i just thought that shit was great and i was third i just thought it was so fascinating the lore and the world building of the empire was great um and determinist stuff I felt like in comparison kind of suffered because it wasn't as colorful and interesting and, you yeah. know, kind of uh, thought provoking, but it had to do a lot of heavy lifting as, as far as, as plots. And I thought that I kind of, I, 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 I kind of thought that the, the ghosts and the house kind of metaphor, um, I wasn't sure about that, but by the end of the episode, I thought it was a pretty elegant way to, you know, talk about this thing in metaphor, but then also to bring it around to the reality that like yeah. kind of the chickens are home to roost and in, in, in kind of uh, an interesting way and so connect I, I re- the, the two halves of the show. All right. Exactly. Yeah. So, and I was kind of shocked that we didn't get any more developments about like Gail and the manner of Harry's uh, death, uh, what that meant, you know, and that like we're, we're, I, I imagine we will get answers, but, but the show is not interested in them right now, which I think could be frustrated, frustrating. But I, I was so fascinated by the other stuff. I didn't really mind it. How, how did you find this episode? Uh, I, I feel like a TV watcher, the way that I think Brother Dusk feels about the world and life. Like it, it's it's only at the very tail end of his life that he's sort of opening his mind to bigger questions. Right. He's pondering like. Yeah, there's a theme of like building versus stagnation or even destruction in this episode. And I think he's just now grappling with those issues at the very tail end of his life, which I I feel like I 
have seen so many television shows at this point that have kind of stagnated into this very small storytelling, this intimate storytelling. And that's fine. I love those shows. But this is kind of kicking open new doors, new ways of telling stories. Uh, And and now I I really understand kind of why people say, is this thing even filmable? Because this show is not going to hold your hand too much, right? It'll give you... 400 years earlier, 400 years later, 35 years, 17. It'll tell you those, but it is not going to really hold your hand through what is a fairly rough transition of brother darkness or the old brother dusk aging out of the brother dusk role and the new clone not being born yet. Right. There's there's Mm -hmm. a Lee pace in this episode that is not the same Lee pace that we saw last episode. And they don't tell you that until like 40 Mm -hmm. minutes into this episode or whatever. So, yeah, it, but I found that fascinating. Right. And I found like v- very much the, the same thing you were talking about with um, the, the thematic connections between the two sections of this episode, the two halves. Um, I- I've seen episodes do things like that before, but the kind of scale they're doing it on here is something I don't think I have ever seen. And I'm really enjoying it for what it is. Yeah, there's something on the official podcast that I enjoyed today. I was listening to the showrunner Goyer saying that one thing they wanted to get right in front. There's like two non-human characters in this show. One of them is the vault, which is still very mysterious. And the other one is time itself. And that you have to feel like time is something that affects things and it controls the pacing of things. And they wanted the the audience like it's like a hard check that like you have to be cool with this character, like having it say um and and making big changes you know just in a way that like a a villain or a hero would you know mm-hmm. um and i thought this episode kind of typified that like yeah if you're not into like oh 400 years 419 years after to start if you're not like willing to put forth the effort to do a little bit of math and kind of like go with that flow it's it's probably because you're going to be like what the fuck is any of this stuff yeah um they're, and, they're using and, it so well to tell the story of yeah. a stagnated empire i Right. Yeah, I I really appreciated what they were doing this episode. Um, On so many levels, too. Like, it's not just like this is just a surface level. Like they they constantly reinforce and interweave other things in this episode to to help you appreciate that as well. Uh huh. Uh, Yeah. um, That narration that we get from uh, Salvor, I think. Or is it Gale? I still think it's Gale. Still Gale? I still think this is Gale. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That narration is like connecting both of those halves it's sort of bridging the gap between the old and the new and um it, you know like going forward into the future while also not forgetting the lessons of the past um which i think everybody can identify with right uh mm. well unless i don't know you're 15 then you don't have any lessons of the past <laughs> sure but, uh, then, then you, you reach it like this so you can kind of like uh get a leg up on on things yeah for sure uh so that's what i thought i thought it was great probably better actually than the first two episodes i think it's just i kind of agree too taking to that back and like i felt like also the show just was felt very confident and unhurried like mm-hmm. you know uh if you were curious about how this genetic or genetic dynasty ruled then you're going to get a lot of cool satisfying answers and it's going to have a lot of like you know android on we mixed into it and if that's if this is the type of show you're in for then then this is a preview if not you know exits are to the left Mm-hmm. It is wild that like um, this is uh, kind of like a a David Simon show 
in that it doesn't really care to hold your hand and, and introduce you to concepts like it expects you to at least give it four or five episodes to click before you know it's it's not as is as interested in you know entertaining you as it is in getting you to think about different ideas and i know it sounds kind of like i don't know like artsy fartsy or, or elitist but it's I, I don't think it is i think it's just like there's you know, if you try to be a show for everybody, then you're going to come across as generic and an afterthought. But if you can try to be a show for a particular type of person, then you might be able to, like, really move the ball forward in terms of, like, what you're trying to say, you know, because you'll you'll have a, you'll get a person who's willing to meet you halfway, which means you don't mm-hmm. have to do twice the work to express your ideas. I think there's time and place for all that stuff. Like, you know, God love I love my MCU and my john wick and that shit but like this is a this is like very espresso and uh or like a really hoppy beer you got you gotta kind of acquire a taste for it and i have i have i've I've been a a fucking giant nerd all my life and it's paid off now in 2021 and you can still like the mandalorian (laughs) and this show you know you're allowed to so yeah yeah let's not get all snobby about it but also let's appreciate the things that it's doing that are unique and original yeah, I just like that this there is this lane that is now being right? occupied by not just one but several vehicles. Like it's like this is such a huge improvement from the most of my you know child and adult life that like uh, at, at best you'd get a science fiction wave where it's like pop culture sci-fi, but like yeah, this yeah. kind of stuff, I, this weird shit, like yeah, Dune we, and thing. I'm I'm really excited. Right, Dune's coming up pretty soon. Um, we talk about the Expanse a lot. Uh, that being a great show, but even that isn't doing the same type of thing that this is doing you know it's servicing yeah. uh more realistical like socio-political type of thing but yeah this is kind of taking it and <laughs> just blowing the scale up uh sure and i'm I, i'm really digging it so far yeah like yeah the expanse is still a commentary on like early 21st century political climate environmental climate stuff like that whereas mm-hmm. this is like thousands of years of human history taking a taking a step back and looking at how like in a broad scheme like civilizations rise and fall so it's uh it's it's great it's great and i like i'm i'm loving it so far yeah well how about we get into the recap let's do it all right first let's take a break another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, we start off. I don't know how you can start off an episode earlier, but this starts off 400 years earlier. Uh, we've got the original emperor, Cleon I. He's dying. He's talking with Demerzel about the future of his empire uh, and his legacy. And she tells him that his continuity is assured. He's having a bit of a pre-death crisis here. I mean, this, this, this strikes at something that we've talked a lot about in terms of cloning. Like, you know, continuity of consciousness, man. You can mm-hmm. have a clone, even if it has 100% intact your memories and your thoughts and feelings, which as far as I can tell, these clones do not. You yeah. know, it's it's a hard, it's a big ask to to tell to tell the person that's going to be disintegrated that, oh, yeah, you're going to live on in this other thing. It's going to be just like, you know, and I, I think you see a lot of that kind of like 
frustration like i this is this is my brainchild and i should be able to see it not me in like the second sense but my eyes and my mind my comprehension should be able to see it and the frustration that you you can't you can't even though you're going to live forever you're not going to live forever old man yeah i thought that's it's great uh i also when he's standing here talking to demersel he's looking out the window looking at the star bridge that is yet to be fully constructed it's in the process Mm -hmm. and he's talking about you know things that can be sort of interchangeably used to describe his uh starbridge or himself as as a clone uh emperor and i think that's interesting because that i think is in a nutshell the the entire uh first half of this episode let's say because what he's doing there is he's talking about wishing that he could see the his legacy fulfilled in the form of this starbridge which to me represents growth or building something um, creation. And then he's also fretting about this clone uh, thing, which to me represents stagnation. Um, and I think the episode and the show so far has told us that it's basically stagnated uh, and, and in some ways destruction, right? You see what happens later on with the star bridge and <laughs> his legacy is destroyed at the hands of his legacy, which it's yeah. it, right. It's crazy uh, what they're doing here. But I, I really started to appreciate in this in this very first scene the kind of thematic stuff that they're going for. The other thing I want to talk about is there's a lot of talk also with uh, Demerzel and they mention, you know, that he's talking about like uh, he sees her as a vital piece of the continuity and they're definitely, mm-hmm. I mean, they haven't explicitly said that, but like almost all the emperors agree that they greatly value her advice and her opinion. Like she's kind of the yardstick. They measure themselves because she's the only one that's known all of them, but she's also in a precarious position because for some, you know, reason there is a robot rebellion. There's a robot war. Her kind were kind of eradicated uh, as as far as we know. So she's kind of like a singular person as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And I couldn't help but note there might be some double talk in the beginning of this where they're talking about you spent more time with the systems programmers than me mm-hmm. uh are i don't know like it is where are we talking about her programming are we talking about the spaceports programming what like there's there's an ambiguity in there just like there has been in her role the whole time yeah you know like the there's the fact that this guy and his personage is called empire but also it's the entire system when she says it's always on her mind. Is she talking about the person or is she talking about there, there's mm-hmm. I, I, I think there there is some room that they are. They're, they're suggesting some kind of duplicitous that she is. Loyal to something, but it's not necessarily this 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 dynasty of men. Do you, do you feel like any of that? I do. And I think that would lean nicely into the, the thematic stuff I was talking about with creation, stagnation and destruction, because you could have all three in this scene if she is sort of the downfall mm. of the Empire uh, or mm-hmm. at least the Empire as we know it with these these clone Cleons, clone nons. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to, how to pour me into that. Um, but. Yeah, I I get the feeling like when she's saying my mind is, you know, the empire is always on my mind for good or bad. um, Yeah. You know, that's a very nonspecific, like you said, double talk sort of thing that you could say. So something a stalker could say and it's menacing. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I I don't know if I'm reading too much into this um, or looking for something that's not there, but 
And I always just keep coming back to that scene where she's explaining that, you know, my kind didn't die out. They were exterminated by your kind. Mm -hmm. And the the actress who has a very controlled and precise performance definitely put some heat and spin Mm -hmm. on that delivery. Um, And I, you know, it's as will be explored throughout this episode. It's like, what does it even mean for a robot like this to have feelings for people, for institutions, for things, uh, ambitions like it might not. You know, me saying that she's angry about something might be something that she's just like aping or a piece of programming she's following. I thought that was interesting, too. Like these when this robot's talking about missing people and and longing for things. What does that actually mean? Because it probably doesn't mean the same thing it means to myself as a human. Yeah. Uh, Let me play robots advocate for a second and talk about how devastating after this scene, how devastating the destruction of the Star Bridge must be for Demerzel. Uh, if you look at this episode, she's seeing the creation of it and how much it means to Cleon the first, right? And I get the sense through this episode that there is very much a deep connection between specifically her and Cleon the first, mm-hmm. um, maybe slightly more so than the rest of the clones. And so when I look at this, these scenes and I watch uh, the Cleon's ancestors, if that's even the right term for clone ancestors, uh, going up into orbit and destroying the platform at the end of this episode, you can look on Dimmerzel's face and see that that is Mm -hmm. really affecting to her. Is that affecting only because it is Cleon the first legacy that they're destroying or because it's Cleon the first ancestors destroying his legacy? You know, there's so much tied up so many layers to this onion uh, when it comes to the emperor and Dimmerzel. Yeah, and, and to play robots advocate, advocate, uh, and to bolster that point, like I think that there might be something special about the first one because, mm-hmm. like, there, there's this word, and I've used it a bunch on the podcast too because it's been on my mind. Singular is used, I think, two or three times in regard as to something about the imp- empire in the first half of this episode. Um, and you know, thanks for helping me feel, you know, unique as I'm, I'm shuff, shuffle off into the obscurity or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, Klingon the first was like all the others for better or worse. She raised from a clone. They had the exact same trajectory. 30 years later, she decanted another one. 30 years later, she decanted another one. She said goodbye. To the uh, Like they are like the same thing that just keeps repeating, keeps repeating. But that first time has to be special, right? Mm-hmm. The time where they're figuring everything out, where everything was uncertain, whether there wasn't like, I actually do think that uh, in her mind that the first one is the greatest and the one that she felt maybe most, uh, I don't know, indebted to or on the level of and, and the others else are just like, you know, they're her, they're children, you know, and they always yeah. will be to some extent. Mm-hmm. So there could be something. I think there's a lot to that. All right. Then we jump 400 years into the future. Uh, or Well, from where we were in the past, uh, Brother yes. Dust is looking out at the falling star bridge platform and pondering his own death. This is, this is kind of exactly a uh, mirror just 400 years in the future of the shot before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dimmerzel tells him about how hard it was for Cleon the first in his final days and then sends him to see the tailor. Uh, and this is, this is a scene where you're talking about, you know, the, the uniqueness, right? Um, and how she's trying yeah. to assure you, every one of you is different. He's very much not buying that. Uh, thank you for you know, trying to make me feel unique as I shuffle off this stage. And all of this, this idea of uniqueness um, 
ties in with the second half of this episode with Salvor, right? Who is also unique and is trying to make sure that people know that that doesn't necessarily mean you're special. It just means yeah. you're different. Um, and here's where the, the, the concept of the time as a character you got, did you have to pay attention to? Because when it said 400 years earlier, I think a lot of people would assume when it says 400 years sooner that it's going to essentially mean where we left off in the last episode, but it's not. It's actually no. 19 years past the spaceport uh, bombing, which they helpfully uh, add with a little caption. But if you're not paying attention to that stuff, then you might, you know, have gotten confused about like who is, you know, Lee Pace, where did the <laughs> right. kid go? Like, and, and, and then when it says, then, then the show later says now, uh huh. Which is a completely fucking relative concept. <laughs> like, is so, so, but it, that might be like the first frame of reference we started the show with, you know, Sal, Salver, uh, with the kids, uh, by, by the null field. So, but it, yeah, you, you really have to stay on your toes for sure. Does that imply that whatever is happening now, uh, it's because Gail is the narrator that would also be in the now? I don't know because Gail makes references to things that are happening quite a bit further in the future in the first episode, which you list off. But that whole episode names. takes place all... almost thirty-five years in the past, right? <laughs> You're right. So yeah. So I and so what? What kind of omniscient is she? Like speaking from within psycho history, like she is looking forward that and could backwards because be. I I don't think she has some. There's I I mean I could be wrong, but I don't think there's like some god emperor turn. Where someone like rain, like other than like this clone thing, like I don't think they literally have like humans that live for thousands of years in this this saga. I so, don't like, know, I, but... I, I, don't, I don't think they go to Dune Trent, but like, yeah, I, I assume the only frame of reference she could possibly take is as a you know in depth psycho historian, yeah, because um, she does have like an out of time on almost omniscient narrator narration style, yeah, and it could be she's um. Yeah, it doesn't really sound like she's reading from the Encyclopedia Galactica, which is, no. you know, the framing of at least that first book. So it, I, I don't know what they're doing, but I'm wondering if she's not in the 35 years later section of the first two episodes or the now be, section yeah. of this episode. We'll see. Because um, you're yeah, right. She did does I have to come last back. episode the idea that like Gail might be the vault? Uh, can't Did I mention that last episode? That. Because like it, it, it would make sense that like maybe she was sent, like, well, well, maybe we'll talk about that in the foundation or the terminus half of the episode. Yeah, I think we did talk about. Um, I think I just laid it out there as a pos- like a, cra- was, a kind yeah. of a yeah Gonzo possibility, but like some stuff that happened in the second half of this episode kind of like reawakened that in the, that that idea. Gotcha. Uh, so the tailor fits brother dusk for what we find out are his funeral garments later. Uh, the tailor thinks he screwed it up with his shaky hands, but brother dusk thinks it's perfect. He does, however, request that the tailor's young assistant put the final touches on it, which I think is less about it being perfect because of shaky hands and more about this generational, uh, passing of knowledge. Right. Yeah. Like, like brother dusk's like seems like one of his chief roles is to smooth the transition, you know, and to encourage the, the older things to yield to the younger things. And Mm -hmm. I thought it's cool that he's doing that even in matters as small as the the fitting. Yeah. Uh, And here too, like when he said it's a singular garment, 
what the hell does that mean? There's been 12 exact. I mean, they're not exact or different, but like this, these funerary robes, it, it's, it's silly to say something like that. And I think, I think that's part of the tragedy of brother dusk is like as in his twilight, he realizes the absurdity. Yeah. You know, like the, at the end of this long, beautiful day, like all these things about uniqueness and, Oh, I'm the painter and I'm this, it's like, it's all just bullshit and what, mm-hmm. and, and, and meaningless. Uh, I, I couldn't help but think what a shame it is. This Taylor who is going to all this trouble to get the perfect outfit and create this beautiful garment only to have it disintegrated. I, it must be what it's like to be a chef, right? You make this beautiful plate of food and then you have some cretin come in and just devour it. It's just the experience. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, I also, did you notice because I watched this episode, I think three times or like carefully twice. And I had on the background as doing notes, but like I was moved to check to see what the belly button situation was because they later established that the umbilical cord enters into the back of the clone somewhere. And I was gratified to know it wasn't a great job, but when the emperor climbs up on his little dais, the mirror catches him a couple times just right to see his belly. And they've, they've sure enough silly puttied his belly button hole. (laughs) uh it, it's again it's it's Why? not perfect it's not it's not because you wouldn't it, that's a fact if the, the the belly button's an umbilical scar man if you didn't have an umbilical cord you presumably yeah and, but and don't I get you, a thing wouldn't the body just be naturally set up to use that as the port like I, that's the thing why i don't know why you would it? move it I don't know why you'd move it to the back that's that's the thing i don't know and like also i was looking for like a back button you know, uh-huh. uh, and I didn't see any. There's, it's, but it's hard because his whole back was a constellation yeah. of like liver spots. It's like a spilt coin purse of coins. Uh, <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> to use the Aussies, the Aussies uh, poetic language later on. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, they're, you're trying. You're trying to you least you least silly puttied the belly button. Yeah. I appreciate that. Good, good whether, job. whether it makes sense or not, at least they've abided by their continuity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, did you notice something else that uh, technically was weird with this episode? And I don't know if this is my TV and my, my audio settings or what, but th- this was very noisy audio, extremely noisy. And you could really? tell that there were some times when the voice was dubbed over and it sounded total like you could tell they were in a recording booth versus the stuff that was recorded probably on set. I did not notice that. I did not. And I have a fan running in the, the room where I was watching this and taking uh, notes. So maybe okay. I didn't notice the background. It's, it's not a pristine audio environment, but uh, yeah. I, you know, I didn't. That's interesting. Okay. I, I didn't know. Maybe people can write in and, and let me know if that's my TV because I will change the settings. If not, uh, the show is a little bit dodgy with its audio occasionally. Hmm. Uh, so then Brother Desk is questioning everything including the future of the Outer Reach and Harry Seldon's words. And they're, they're standing kind of in front of this, this globe thing uh, right now. Or not even a globe, it's like a picture of... I guess it's like a depiction of the Outer Reach. It must be... Yeah, the barbarian kingdoms. Yeah, these planets that they were shooting at uh, at the end of the last episode. Yeah. Uh, the other brothers assure him, no, the Empire's strong, don't worry about anything. Uh, Dusk wants to save Cleon the first dream by trying to like push the star bridge platform back up into space or something doesn't come down on their heads and brother day tells him uh to forget the legacy of cleon the first because or, or to forget the star bridge because we are the legacy of cleon the first the dream of cleon the first 
and and this is the first time that you see Lee Pace uh, and what we would conventionally think of as Brother Dusk in the same room with the Brother Dusk that is getting very old and about to die. Mm-hmm. It, I, I think at this point they're still named Brother Dawn and Brother Day. Mm-hmm. It's just that yep. Lee Pace is Brother Dawn. Now yeah. he's aged, you know, 30 years. I, I did some it math. It seems like they're exactly 30 years yes. apart. Yeah. Yeah. I did some math and it was 400 plus 17 that we get later on with the young right. version of, yeah. uh, or I guess the older version of Dawn, but not quite Lee Pace Dawn. So this was the 11 year old we saw, you know, bemoaning the, the choices they're having to make in, in the first one. Right. Uh, and up and the Lee Pace, Lee Pace yeah. we knew before has aged into what we view as brother dusk yeah and then you got brother yeah. darkness here who isn't quite brother darkness yet i think he will be tomorrow yeah 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 it's fucking cool i like and i, I liked all the, cer- the, yeah. the 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 ceremonial stuff too i also love the synchronized gestures which is kind of you know like every once in a while i'll see my son like roll his eyes in exactly the same way i roll my and i, I like there's got to be something genetic to that it's it's probably also it's probably learned too sure but like they both make the same kind of like you know the dismissive ge- gesture with their chin uh and they do this throughout the episode uh i i just like it i like that continuity and it's it, it doesn't even seem practiced it's just yeah, they're they're feeling the exact same way and reacting the exact same way to it. And it's just subtle shit like that that I think this show does really well with this stuff. Yeah. Um it, it really struck me in this episode the contrast between the longevity and power of the Emperor versus the the understanding that the Emperor has of the world. It, 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 he seems very dismissive of everything that is outside of his interest, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And his interest is very small. His interest is uh, isolated to whatever he's feeling that day or, or the details on some gift from some, you know, outer reach planet. Uh, he, he's missing all of the bigger picture picture things, which is what brother desk is just now starting to open up to. Right. And you get the uh, sense of like, Boy, the empire is so vast and the emperor is so powerful and yet there's there's this short-sightedness to it all. It is remarkable the, the contrast there. Oh yeah. And they they do a lot of that with the with Terminus Terminus kind of flourishing in the trade and outer like as the empire recedes it gives you know, it's 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 almost better to have like no imperial control than it is to have like careless or disinterested imperial control because that can like put a wet blanket over everything. Whereas if they just completely pull out, you could have like, you know, yeah, it's better, hey, there's, there's, it's better for the backwaters to free trade amongst themselves than it is to like trade through the central empire and get all, you know, it's, it's, it's it just kind of like uh, the empire is, is no longer efficient for those same reasons. We talked about that last week that like he talks about how you have to pay attention and everything's about the details. Yeah. Yet the emperor at the, in the same notion is scoffing at like all oh, these primitive backwaters. We can give them 12 hours of our attention and they're going to think it's going to, you know, it'll be the most important 12 hours in their lives. And, but like, it's just like the ultimate echo chamber, you mm-hmm. know, like he's been in it for 400 fucking years of the empire catering to his tastes and his thoughts and his prejudices. And look where it's gotten. Whereas before, you know, a new guy could come along and at least have a fresh perspective. You're trying very hard to eliminate that. Yeah. And I, and I, the, 
the contrast that I love so much is the the longevity of the emperor as a being or an entity, right? But also the short-sightedness of that entity. And then this individual in this this copy of Cleon that's mind is opening up, mm. having sort of the expansive vision beyond that only at the very end, right? It's like this perpetual cycle of like birth of thought and death of thought in like the same day, it seems, right? <laughs> like yep. they can never and- make any progress because the moment that awakens, it's gone. Mm-hmm. It's wild. And the tragedy seems like the, all the emperors kind of arrive at these conclusions right as they're about to ascend. Right. You know, right. Right? it's like, you know what? We've got this whole thing. <laughs> it gets zapped. <laughs> yeah. And that got me thinking about Demerzel's role in this whole thing. Is she there to simply uh, serve the whims of the emperor or is she there to be sort of a generational mind for the empire? Because mm-hmm. As much as, you know, you would you would impart your wisdom if your wisdom is flawed because of being myopic or whatever over however many generations the emperor uh, has been doing this 15, 14, something like that. I think this is the 14th, this nucleon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Is she there to kind of keep everything moving in a direction? And what's her agenda? Because she could absolutely shape the shit out of these kids. Sure. You know, like yeah. whatever Cleon the first was, like maybe the, what they are now is what she's molded them to be carefully over 400 years. I wonder if that was part of Cleon's. It, it, there's a very specific like uh, structure to this cloning operation, right? We mentioned how every 30 years another clone is made uh, mm-hmm. and they are, it, you know, there's this continual wave of Cleons both rising and falling. Um, Except for the first one that apparently got to 90 before the baby was ready to cook. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and only had the baby and Dimmerzel uh, when mm-hmm. he shuffled off. It, it, it makes me, yeah, it makes me wonder if that was sort of a safeguard against any possible tampering by Dimmerzel, right? Because you do have a sort of institutional understanding it's, and knowledge in the Cleons, in the, the waveform of the Cleons, right? This is right, because you like the, if, if you're, if uh, you start, you know, brainwashing brother dawn presumably brother dusk and day will be like the fuck is going on here right um but but <laughs> you did have that first first uh clone that uh you, you know she was able to do and there was no no guarding over it whatsoever and, and you know I, I think it necessarily stagnates the cleons they aren't able to very well adapt i would think over the years 100 percent. like all, all the wisdom that was imparted by their predecessor is second hand and like yeah. you said like imagine like what kind of butterfly flap you could just change like some small part of that wave that's going to magnify and and and, and further generations maybe you wanted to destabilize and stagnate the empire because you wanted to bring it down because you're fucking pissed that they wiped out your kind right i don't know <laughs> could be so it, it could be something that's happening again it's not me i don't i haven't read I, i've read the books but like i said i don't there were no robots in the books i read so yeah this is just just me riffing with what i'm seeing here for sure all right we move on to brother desk walking a uh i don't know if there's an official name for this room but it's a hall with all the emperor's likenesses in it um, and they all kind of have labels, the, the dreamer, the scholar, the alchemist and the painter, which is the current brother desk. Uh, Dimmerzel comes in and fetches brother desk so that the brothers can give him his last gift. 
Yeah, I thought this was interesting. Another, uh, they're trying to tell the story of the decline. You got the the dreamer and the scholar and the alchemist and the architect and all this, and then you got the painter. Which, mm-hmm. if we recall, all of the brothers paint all the time. Like that's their like their yeah, like okay. hobby is to paint that. Like they talked about like this successive generations ad and keeps evolving. So the fact that he's the like he's the emperor known for indulging in the imperial hobby the most. Uh-huh. Like I, I just thought that they like they don't ever say explicitly that that is, but he kind of like can tell that that he feels inferior. In fact, mm-hmm. he uh, uh, reveals in the scene that he feels self conscious because he never could look as imperial as the first emperor. He never could master that. Like, oh yeah, look at that, look at that bastard up there. That's that's a guy you want to clone forever. Not me. I can't, I can't be that guy. I thought it's interesting how you know kind of pathetic it all was. <laughs> And then there's a gift of uh, a meal, which is not the full gift. The real gift is a flight up to the Starbridge platform where they both destroy it and promise to build a greater legacy in the future. So. I kept on thinking the scale of the technology we talked about and the power of the empire that we've already seen, they can harness a black hole to travel through space instantaneously. They can fucking turn the world this an entire surface of a world to glass if they want to they could do all these things so powerful when you see uh an abandoned space station that was the centerpiece of their legacy just floating around 19 years and scientists like oh gee am i crashing any moment now that implies a, f- a failure of will more than like power and wealth right like imagine like yeah. so we just got done with the 20th anniversary of 9 11 here in america Imagine if like 20 years after the two holes of of the Twin Towers were still smoking craters Mm. because in 20 years, no political regime could get the capital and the political will together to do anything to approve a plan. Maybe it's not popular, but but, but just fucking do something, build something there. Imagine 100 years goes by and they're just fucking smoking craters still like that. That says something about like it's with all the power and money that you have available. You can't get that fucking thing done. You can't yeah. bring to get it implies something about the 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 rot that is and then you know like I said we're we're not that far gone we can still do things in this in this country mm-hmm. um, but, the but this is what the empire is doing they can pick an afternoon drive up there and blow it up right they could have solved this problem you're right all along they had they it within their power up or, yes yeah, yeah and they just, they just chose it. not to and in fact there's I think the old man realizes he's being had I think brother darkness here realizes when they blow it up that like oh, you're not you're not going to build something greater. This is just to make me feel better on my last day. And you guys are going to go back to whatever version of bread and circuses you're indulging in right now. And it's that very population. It's that myopic view again, right? Like this is a slap in the face to Brother Dusk, who has just awakened to the fact that this was Cleon the first legacy. Right. And what does it mean? And he created something. What are we doing? We're doing nothing. Yeah. And, and they God, go and they so, blow it up. That's a slap in his face, man. And it's so evocative. The first emperor welcoming everyone to his peace in this ruined, you know, this corrupted hologram still saying everything's OK. Everything's cool. Right. As his predecessors mm-hmm. blow him up. It's like and it's also like it, it's it's an ironic sense of peace, kind of like in the way I think uh, Neil Armstrong described the moon as a magnificent desolation. Like it's kind of like, the, yeah, it's peace because it's the peace of the tomb. This yeah. thing is just dead and inert. Uh, I thought that stuff was really, again, great multi-level storytelling. You don't ever stop and like 
you know, comment on this shit. It's just there for yeah. you to to appreciate. Yeah, and then I couldn't help but think about Demerzel in this uh, scene also because she was there when this thing was created. She knew what it meant to Cleon the first, and here it is, his legacy destroying his legacy. Ironically, swept uh, under the rug. Yeah, yeah. One more, one more dawn day dust cycle, and no one will even remember it. Yeah, yeah. Although I will hold open that the, they'll build another space elevator in the form of Cleon oh. the fourteenth, given two golden platinum fingers to the whole universe. <laughs> like that's the spaceport's the tip of his middle fingers. Sure, that, they they could, they might do that. <laughs> they might, they might. Uh, Brother Dusk goes to the cloning facility where he sees Demerzel singing to the new Brother Don that's being incubated. He's not supposed to be there, so Demerzel sends him away, and he goes to the new Brother Don's room in the nursery and paints a mural above his crib and then he sleeps and Demerzel takes him to his bed uh, I, this is good stuff yeah yeah. I, I have questions though like why can't I, I, I think they're hinting at an answer I don't think it's like fully answered why they institute a policy that they can't go see the older Cleons can't go see the younger Cleons being cloned. And, and there's something about him calling it unnatural um, that, that makes me think maybe there would be uh, one of these clones might get the idea that they need to put an end to the line. I thought, I thought all of these scenes dealing with the new brother Don were dripping with menace because yeah. I couldn't help but think that old man's got a disintegrator. Or Lee Pace is just going to play drop the fucking bait like that. This one's bad. This one's not a good one. Drop it on the floor like like. uh, Yeah, yeah. And it didn't. But it shows just how kind of like fragile, fragile it all is. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, yeah, I I imagine any emperor could probably order a death squad down there to shoot up the facility and that'd be it. Uh, how yeah. do they? It's, it's it's just a way to tradition. Uh, It's kind of scary when there's nothing stopping great men and women from really fucking up shit except for tradition and handshake deals and things like that. Mm-hmm. But man, unspoken, a lot of spoken unwritten rules, yeah. unwritten rules of decorum and stuff. And I, I you know, uh, part of the lat the shock of the last decade or so is realizing how much of our own civilization, uh, just rests on those kind of things. It's right. like agreements to like play nice and do things. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's also a sad scene for Demerzel, um, you know, thinking about how much she uh, liked Cleon the first and how she has to sort of relive his death every 30 years or so. Um, yeah, you guys always leave me. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the Cleon here, the zip brother dusk is lamenting, or, or I guess it's not, it's Cleon the first at the beginning of this episode, lamenting that he's going to die and then saying, Oh, you'll never know death. But, she knows his death. She knows it intimately. She's seen it over and over and over again. And yeah, she might not ever, you know, fear death coming too soon. But at the same time, she has this tragedy that she has to relive over and over. Right. It's yeah. a different kind of hell. Yeah. I also thought there's, uh, it's really evocative filmmaking here too. There's like these overhead shots of the emperor and his like ghostly white gown with this like ghostly white source walking through these darkened hallways at night. And they're talking about the ghosts that haunt you. 
And I kept on thinking that like brother dusk seems increasingly to be like that to the Royal family. He's the one Mm -hmm. that's always being like, you're going to regret this. And you think you can control everything and you can't. And uh, I I thought it was, he looks like a literal ghost doing this. Um, And then also if you want another, you know, bean to move over into the, is Demerzel evil? Uh, The fact that she is singing to the emperors and they don't know this particular song or what I feel like it's a hinting of like what other subtle manipulations, um, what other insidious things might she be weaving into their, their being raised that they're not aware of, you know, like, are they yeah, like that, like little nugget of wisdom she implied, uh, imparted to brother Don last episode about like, you always choose it. Is that true? Or is that something she's telling them to influence? None of the other brothers are there to be like, what the fuck? That's not, no, no, we don't do this all. It's, it's, I, I think it's interesting. I, I feel like, yeah, Demerzel, if not evil, not serving the <laughs> empire the way you would conventionally understand it. That's the thing. I, I felt very West, very Westworld in this mm-hmm. scene. Um, you've got, you know, the, it's not exactly the same thing, a clone and a robot, not, not even close, but like, the the imagery is very similar um of of creation and this you know sci-fi uh center here and then you've got Demerzel saying things that you know are meant to be doing things that are meant to be uh beautiful right um and, and they're they're like she's comforting this child i didn't know you did this i didn't know you cared that much like this is why we put you in charge of the the emperor, the empire. And then this could also be masking something, right? This could be the double talk. This could be the show's double talk. It's not even the character saying something um, that could be taken yeah. two ways. It's the tone, the feel of the show. And yeah, I, I remember them doing that several times in Westworld and feeling like they were doing something similar here. I could be totally Agreed. wrong though. No, I, I definitely pick up on it too. And then there's the mural that, um, that Brother Dusk goes and paints above Brother New Brother Don's uh, crib here, which is very much reinforcing that motif, um, the theme of creation versus destruction or stagnation. And if you look at it, it's you know the the Cleons sort of lifting something up into the heavens, right? Yeah, that's, that's yeah. the act Brother of creation. Darkness's brothers that they're there uplifting. Yeah, and I, I think that's right. his. What what was your interpretation of the meaning of it? I think he's trying to inspire um, the new brother Don to create something, right? To do something beyond the stagnation that they've been doing for the last fourteen generations. And and I, I thought also as a reminder of his brothers to keep their promise about this gift. You know, like look at yeah. them uplifting. They're not. They're also uplifting. I think you're supposed to understand that that is something greater than themselves. It's also Brother Dawn, you know, like Mm -hmm. uh, all working together to, like you said, create something. So, yeah. And and of course, 19 years later, some punk is going to just erase it because fuck it. (laughs) Yeah. So, wah, wah. Yeah. I'm very curious to see more about how that turn happened. I can't wait. And we're going to get it too. I guarantee you. Yeah. It's going to be some good, some good shit from Lee Pace. I'm sure. Uh, it's too bad because like the, the time being a character, some, some of me thinks that this would work better if the foundation stuff are interleaved with the empire stuff a bit more, but hmm. it's just hard to do. Like yeah. there's only so many time jumps. Like if you had to keep that, keep on going like this is 20 years before this is night, this is 35 years. No, this is 19 to, 
it'd be uber fucked but it does make these very feels like lord the lord of the Rings series where it's like each book is actually two separate books and i was all i don't know about everyone else but i was always a little bit more invested in one book than the other and like having to go a whole fucking book to get back to the good stuff quote unquote i always found uh a tough and i feel like when i was reading some of the reviews of this episode there's people like oh clearly the empire stuff's more interest it should be called empire and i found i'm like okay we'll settle Give down time. but also <laughs> right sometimes it's going to be like that you yeah. know yeah i promise you the foundation stuff will get more interesting <laughs> but yeah, right now yeah, yeah, yeah the empire is fascinating uh so cleon wakes the next morning puts on his new clothes uh is there an emperor's new clothes uh reference here <laughs> Anywhere is that what's happening? One of the Klingons going to be brave enough to just go full but full buck naked. You know? <laughs> sure, I mean he almost did. It's, this way, episode. It's, it's the way I came into the world. It's the way I'm leaving. Nah, yeah. I don't need the I don't need the spandex thong. Just just put me out there. Uh, he christens. I you know in, in without the religious connotations of that word, he christens the new brothers dawn, day, and dusk, and then becomes I guess brother darkness himself, and walks into a disintegration chamber. And they take the baby over and they mark it with his remains and brother day takes it to its crib. Yeah. I thought, I mean, it's, it's a great scene because it's just a really beautiful way to hand everybody. It felt like cogs clicking forward. Like, you know, everyone's saying, yeah. yep, your brother dusts now and your brother day. And Oh, look at you, Don. And now I'm darkness. And is there anything uh, menacing in the hand on the back ushering Dude, brother no, darkness very. into the disintegration chamber it, they use it that is, image twice right in this episode uh, yeah uh, yep and and they made this point in the the official podcast that like demerzel is strong enough to just effortlessly pick this old man up and carry him like a child fair that yeah. they showed in the previous scene so like entirely possible that Dem- that this always happens like i, I yeah. i'm not sure what, what i believe because i could also believe that this is a unique inflection point that the old emperor is like is going into a disintegrator uneasy i could also believe that every one of these fuckers went into the disintegrator uneasy including the first one that was just entrusting it to a child you know so mm-hmm. like but like the fact that like when she puts her that's like a that's a that's a bar of iron you know like you're getting on a, a roller coaster and the lap bar is just descended you're not getting like and and also the disintegration chamber is just so nakedly menacing like it hissing is. and snapping and it looks like it's going yeah. even though and and the, the music is at such a uh odds to it i mm-hmm. i again I, I hate to say but i fucking loved all this shit it's so good it's not even just like the idea of the strength the the potential strength of demerzel uh yeah being this iron you know device pushing you toward your death it's also the metaphor of of the the control that she has right over not just yeah. this one man right now standing in front of his death, but sure. The entire empire. you going to cry. You're going to be the first empire to claw cry. <laughs> you want to be clear, clear. Yeah. It's like, you like, yeah, the they're like, so, yeah, yeah. We can, you we can change first... that painter thing. Oh, you don't like painter. You want to cry or baby? <laughs> oh, you want to cry? Don't be disintegrated. Yeah, no, I, I totally got that, that they are all kind of like, jockeying for her attention and approval like she's like their universal mother uh and mm. maybe intentionally so so yeah. i i yeah i'm i'm glad that we we both are picking up on this stuff uh and then i also thought that that's in like i actually thought that was going to like carbon freeze them like the first guy like there there's going to be like a uh. hall of emperors that are like permafrost frozen in the glass stuff and no he just got fucking vaporized and then they ashed the baby's forehead. Oh, I just thought that was great. I thought this whole thing is just so fucking cool. 
Let me ask you this. this. The Hall of of Emperors or whatever it's called. Mm -hmm. Do you think that those emperors, the 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 busts of those emperors that sort of materialize are made of their remains. Oh my God. I thought that's what you're going for halfway through your sentence. And I fully, en- I know, but I fully endorse that as head <laughs> okay, Yeah. The part cool. the, the chroma sands are made out of their dust. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. That's fucking metal, um, man. <laughs> but, uh, it, it is cool. And I, I just like, Man, I like the lore and the world 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 building almost more than I like stories. Like I, the lore will keep me into things like fucking Magic the Gathering, Warhammer, way past mm. like the stories not making sense or whatever. Um, and I feel like that's the the most cr- freest creative in terms of fantasy and science fiction when you're just oh, building yeah. a world. Because like as soon as you add a story, fuck, you got a plot. You have to make it make sense. You have to have reasonable motivations for people to do. But like when you're just like saying, yeah, old man gets incinerated and the robot goes and spreads ashes on the baby. Like mm-hmm. what? Cause that's the fucking way they do it, man. Back off. Like, yeah. You, yeah. You, it's the tradition. You, what do you want? Yeah. Like do we do crazy shit? There's just so many crazy be- funerary customs and in, in our yeah, little we're planet, grabbing that alone. baby and we're cutting its dick. So I don't, yeah. I don't want to hear about the ashes on its head. Yeah, yeah, I fucking it's 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 the purest form of science fiction fantasy creativity, and this show's got it in spades. Yeah, uh, there was a nice ironic, or it's not ironic. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what to call it, but there's a nice line here where the says the dream lives on be, uh, in you because you kept it alive in you, which is mm-hmm. literally true in this. Yeah, instance with all these clones, um, and it gives you a sense of you know what they're trying to do with the education of the nucleons and all that stuff so thought that was neat and then 17 years later brother don has the mural that brother darkness painted erased and i like how gail's talking about the ghost and being haunted by prophets and there's this stubborn speck that can't be removed from the wall and they zoom in it becomes the son of terminus yeah, uh, it's a great way to connect the two episodes like the the Empire is very much b- burying its head in the sand. And here we're out to see what the sand is getting up to. I, I like it. Yeah. And then some of the, the words she uses where we're haunted by prophets all we ignore the dead at our peril. I mean, she's referring to Harry Selden here, but also I think Brother Dusk or Brother Darkness as we know him now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All that. All right, then they begin colonizing Terminus. Uh, we're in the second half of the episode now. Apparently, Harry predict- predicted all the uh, exile stuff that would happen, and not just that he'd be exiled, but where he'd be exiled. Um, so he left things for them, I guess, um, is what they said in this episode, um, on Terminus, and kind of had everything just so. that He knew where they'd land, all that stuff. So they try to uh, approach the vault, but they're unable due to the field around it and legends about it start to proliferate in the colony as they build up around it or near it. I'd say, uh, Salvor is apparently the daughter of some of the colonists here. One of which is Clark Peters. And I fucking knew his gray hair would show up. I knew it. <laughs> as soon as I saw that dark ass beard, I was like, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. they're going to, mm-hmm. he's going to be around for a while. Wash a shoe polish out. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Uh, and they they talk Clark Peters and his wife in this talk about Salvor's personality and fascination with the vault and Salvor's kind of questioning what the vault is. Yeah, I think so. There's a couple things where I was trying to decide if this made logical sense, like, you know, that these the Selden Knights have spent 
a long time on the way to this running calculations, doing simulations, trying to find the ideal landing spot. And they get there and there's a, an unexplained artifact that pres, per, that, that projects an anti-life field. Mm-hmm. Do these scientists modify their plans to like go to the other side of the planet? Or do they just have enough faith in the, what, what the work that they've done that they're like, well, fuck it. This thing, like, it just felt like maybe borderline unreasonable that they shacked that close to it. But I feel you. I, I think you got to have to go that like, hey, there's the, you know, Harry said to build it here and we did a lot of simulations. All like, what are we going to do? We're going to like throw away all our rehearsing. And just because we're afraid of this inert thing, I, I, I think it's fine. It's just it's one of the things I raise my eyebrows at. I wish we could have seen a little bit of the debate about what to do about this, but they don't have time for that. They're 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 colonizing this shit. Uh yeah, and I I think it's it's telling um what uh Clark Peters says when they approach the vault. He says when he sees it for the first time, "What in Selden's name is that?" Yeah, and that is a very specific phrase, right? That is, it, we would liken it to what what in God's name is that, right? Yeah, it's yeah, showing that Harry sure. Selden is yeah they are divine. This guy he is becoming a prophet he's becoming something larger than just a man to them and i think maybe that's one of the reasons that they stick around is because well harry selden the prophet is not going to be wrong about yeah you know where he was taking us right and maybe he needed that because we talked about him like uh i think the tone of my conversation last week is like he's trying to steer people away from like oh i wasn't even supposed to be here they're going to make me to a god Maybe the opposite. Maybe he had to be martyred to kick the religious fervor into high gear. Uh, it's a very Harry Selden move. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm curious to see us find out more about that. Because like I said, the guy, I'm listening to an official podcast and he's promising answers for everything in the fullness of time. Okay. So we're going to see if he's a, a, a lost Damon Lindelof or if he is a leftovers Damon Lindelof. Although... Notably, the the lost uh, or the the leftovers Lindelof did not promise shit. <laughs> yeah. In fact, he said, "I ain't going to answer shit. It's not about right. that." So, like, uh, yeah, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm 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 a little nervous, a little, little nervous about that statement. Uh, another thing that someone says that I liked that that says a lot, um, without actually saying it, is the way that, uh, let's say Salvor's mother. I don't I don't know her name. I don't know if it's ever said either. in this episode. Um, but Salvor's mother, I think, describes when Mrs. she's talking Hardy. about the empire, or the emperor, she calls them mm. the Cleons. She doesn't say the empire. She doesn't say the emperor. She calls them the Cleons, which to me is sort of the opposite of what in Selden's name is that, right? It's, You're right. You're it's right. a reduction in power, reduction in respect. Mortalizing them. Yeah. yeah. Um, that, that was you know, interesting this- to me. I saw this interesting post on uh, the Foundation TV subreddit where they talked about, um, you know, part of this is about the fall and decline of the Roman Empire. It's what some of this stuff is based on. And they talked about the Byzantine uh, periods of iconoclasm, iconoclasm. There you go. Jesus. Uh, where like different regimes would have would uh, say, hey, you know what? Uh, no more idols and images of past emperors and saints and just burn all that shit down, tear it down because they were wanting to yeah. go in it. And they're they essentially just literally destroying their own history and heritage to like do something new. And I couldn't help but think about that when I was looking at the Klingon, the Klingon, Klingon. <laughs> Cleon the 14th, like burning his mur- mural down and uh, Miss Harden here saying, 
Yeah, like like de canifying the Klingon Klingons. Mm-hmm. It's they are. It's 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 uh, it's a it's a social program. Both working their hardest to try to undermine the other. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and then we go to now, which is now. Salvor approaches the vault with a bug in her hand. It's apparently knocked unconscious, but she's unaffected. She's just doing experiments here. Yeah, yeah. I I have in my notes what does now even mean, but we talked about Same. it. Yeah, yeah. Out near the colony, Salvor messes with a field generator that's part of the fence um, that they apparently have protecting their colony. He asks, uh, he being her father, asks why she's out here. She tells him about the test and that something's wrong with the null field, she says. Uh, And then he tells her to take it to her, which we find out is her mother later. I also thought in retrospect, there's some interesting like foreshadowing of what's to happen. Like it seems unusual that this large of a bishop claw would be moved to provoke to to, the, to, you know, start testing the town's perimeter all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Seems like it's because his territory is being taken over by uh, the the uh, what is it the Arachnians uh, coming A- at the A- end? Anacreons. A- yeah. Anacreons are coming at the end. So I thought that's like when I was watching, I'm like, oh, this is kind of clever because you've got this animal unat- uh, acting unnaturally, and it's because it's being driven out of its uh, if it's if it's layer. Yeah. And then we go to the Foundation Council debating the merits of a water clock versus sundial. There's some. This is a teaching moment uh, for Salvor's mother after the meeting. Yeah, I I gotta say, I like what they're trying to do here, but I found this the the goddamn stupidest conversation, and it made me hate her mother. Like, (laughs) what about what happens when the water runs out? Well, then all the fucking people die. If you can't scrape together enough water to run a clock, you're not going to be able. I I hate to tell you what the water usage of people is, lady. Like, it's just the stupidest fucking like what about the planets that don't have uh, regular solar cycles and what about the planets mm. that have two or three suns and what about like this what the, I mean this is <laughs> this is the type of interesting thing they could have a conversation about but like come on and the, yeah. and this she was maximum uh fucking uh preachy asshole about it too uh yeah this- I didn't like not like this character's <laughs> introduction it, okay, I feel you. Yeah, I, I was thinking something was up here too. Uh, and also, it's the second time they've done one of these. You know, right. I, I got it the first time yeah. with the math stuff and the by the you know the hexadecimal sure. versus the sure. binary versus you know decimal system, all that. I, I assume they're going to continue to do this with the colony to show the deeper thinking you know the the level that yeah. they're on but the precision versus the practicality that's all good but like i just feel like this is the worst example they could have used and the person <laughs> the thing is is i think they're trying to show that she is a little bit of a uh a close-minded thinker in opposition to her daughter but mm-hmm. like they way they 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 hit the retro boosters on that way too much like she's she's skipping off the atmosphere of you know, skeptic and like, you know, closed minded and entered into just being obnoxious. Oh, my God. <laughs> Maybe just me, though. I was wondering. Uh, why they can't preserve more, why they can't like right. maybe draw a picture and a rough concept of how a water clock would work, even if they're going to go the sundial route. Sure. And maybe have like a chronology of like, Hey, you start with the sundial. Then you go to the water clock. As soon as you get a metallurgy, I'm going to blow your mind. Check out those gears and spring shit. You're going to get up to 
Like, and then also here's the end game quartz, baby. It vibrates <laughs> at a certain frequency. Like, seriously? Like, like something as important as keeping time Could and you measuring just things. Grab every record of the patent office and be right. like 80% of the way toward capturing yeah. humans. Well, it's it's kind of like saying, like, what do we need more, the meter or the leader? We can only keep one. They <laughs> right. can either know how long things are, or how much volume it occupies. There's no possible way we could like get the fuck out of here. <laughs> yeah. But, th- but then I thought about stuff that's more complex, right? Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. They're, they're, they're much famed nuclear technology. Um, you know, that could take a there. while to fully explain the intricacies of to someone who is some kind of primitive who wouldn't understand even the most basic parts of it. Right. Or the temptation to skip like any kind of like fossil fuel or combustion technology to go right to nuclear. But like, maybe you have to have a transit, but like, I think that would have been a fascinating debate, like the the impacts on the environment and like being complacent versus like pushing towards nuclear and solar and things like that. That would have been an interesting conversation. Water clocks versus sundials didn't quite do it for me. Gotcha. Uh, so, yeah, after the meeting, Salvor and her mother walk and talk about her role in the foundation and what it could have been versus what she wants um, and what she's best suited for, which are two very different things, apparently. Uh, I, I couldn't help but notice this first this opening shot when we come down to the council in their chambers. There's an external you know, establishing shot of a statue of Harry Seldon. And the building that they're in, and it's very reminiscent of the Empire's stuff, right? The, even the shape of, and I mean, it probably would be. They all come from this society that their architecture wouldn't change overnight, right? Um, but but it evoked like this image of, oh, okay, this is not just some offshoot project thing, but this is almost maybe a direct challenge to the Empire, right? If you're deifying and making statues of Harry Seldon. This is going to be big. Yeah, it does seem like that. I also thought that that central raised building might have been their shuttle, like landed on its engines. And that was like the, the core of the city. So I wasn't sure how much of it is like deliberately ostentatious architecture or just like the administrative buildings were the most important thing and everything grew out from that. Well, they did way, take parts, right? They cannibalized right. the slow ship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To build yeah, their yeah, city. Yeah. So, yeah, they might be literally. Uh, then we have Salvor take her, takes her mother out to the vault. And tells her that the null field is expanding. And so she tests it for herself. Yes, it's true. She talks about the first time she found her here, standing right under the vault. Um, and Salvor said it was calling to her, and her mother couldn't reach her. Um, and her family kind of knows that she's special, but they're keeping it a secret. Nobody else knows that she Nobody knows. is unaffected by this null field. Mm-hmm. Um, and Apparently, like they know something's up with her, though, because she still kind of makes people uncomfortable. And Savor thinks the vault is waking up and they've been, you know, preparing for this crisis that they've been talking about. And she thinks it's here now. Render backyard. Yeah, it, it's interesting that like. um Whatever makes her stand apart from the colonist is entirely separate from her specialness about the null field. Like yeah. there's something about her that's off putting or maybe causes her to be distant. Maybe it's related to the, the immunity, but like she keeps herself distant. She likes to be out in patrol. She likes to be up when everyone else is sleeping, uh, mm-hmm. holding everybody. So it's, it's not like everyone knows that she's a freak and are treating her thus. It's like she does somehow hold herself a little bit apart mm-hmm. uh, to the extent that it annoys people. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, and annoys her mother too. I think she wanted something else for her. Water clocks, <laughs> but she could only give her son dials. Yep. So <laughs> then some kids run to uh, a landing ship to meet a guy named Hugo. And he comes out of the ship and tells him he can give them some stuff, something better than chocolates or whatever, if they help him unload his ship. And you get the impression that he's a traitor, right? Like he's out visiting other colonies, bringing things back. Yeah. And they built this guy up as like a cool dude. Like all the kids are like, oh, Mm -hmm. Hugo's here. It's like Gandalf coming to the Shire, right? Yeah. yeah. Um. And it kind of lives up to it. I like mm-hmm. I haven't I, 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 I've looked this guy up. He's an Australian actor. He's done a couple things that I've not actually seen. I will say that I don't think they did a very good job of selling the eyeballs like the other thespians had intense like Dune Navigator blue eyes. And this guy's just got kind of like mild like dreamboat blue eyes. Um, I thought they were. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of. am confused about how fucking blue the thespian eyes are supposed to be because yeah <laughs> i don't know I see, like, he's a more believable Despin. shade maybe yeah yeah maybe he's uh, they're gonna find that out because like uh, there's got to be something because everybody else had like I mean, am i crazy or did ever all the other thespians have like glowing blue eyes well he also mentioned something about like hiding you know disguising his identity a bit too right so maybe he's intentionally doing something to reduce could the be. blue there, there could be some mystery here yeah yeah, yeah. um but uh, I also like the other thing I thought was hilarious is there's an extra that tries to corral these kids who has mm-hmm. no fucking clue how to act like a person that's corralling kids. He's just like <laughs> miming in open space, man. Kids are like there's. Yeah, that, it's 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 every time I notice, I notice this guy just got like trying to play imaginary goalie to these kids. This is it's hilarious. <laughs> I, I highly recommend that. checking it out on a rewatch. Yeah. Uh, so then Hugo is cooking for Salvor in, in her house. Get the feeling that they are very familiar with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, he's only here for 29 hours, and they use that time to go out and view uh, the other planets he's traveled to as he tells her stories of what's out there. Um, and then asks her to leave. Well, doesn't ask her to leave with him, but kind of suggest it. And then she doesn't have exact reasons, but she can't leave, she says. And afterward, they make love. Uh, I thought this was this is what I was talking about, about like the outer reaches reaches seem to be invigorated by the partial collapse of the empire empire pulling out because like instead of, again, a disinterested empire kind of lazily doing like now they're free to like set up their own thing. And like it's bustling like he's talking about like, you know, the like the streets just lined with gold out there is about and pick it up. You got all these mutually beneficial trade arrangements and it's uh you know, it, it's 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 not decaying and declining. There is a lot of growth and creativity out here where the Empire's light isn't touching. I thought that was interesting. It's again, it's in the margins of storytelling, but they're they're telling it. Yeah. Um, seems like uh, trade is going to be really important um, in, in, in the future to, to, to this uh, outpost. It already is. Yeah, I imagine we'll see more of Hugo. Probably like a I want to see that world that has so later. many moons. I always thought that'd be cool to fucking live yeah. on like like a moon of Jupiter and there's like 69 other moons that you could identify woven around. That'd be fucking sweet, right? Yeah, we got we got we got uh, we got a lot of good things on Earth. I like the breathable atmosphere, the abundance of liquid water, but we really got jobbed on the whole satellites. Just the one big one. Really? Really? OK, it's true. We should Lame. build some of our own. No rings. Can't have a ring system. How dope would that be? <laughs> 
<laughs> They're pretty sweet. Again, like like the breathing, like the the one bar atmosphere at the surface. But man, the visuals really skimped out. All right, Salvor wakes up later that night because she got a weird feeling. She gets out of bed and she goes to walk the perimeter and she sees a child running toward the remains of the slow ship. She chases him inside and eventually spots both a bishop's claw, I think, is what this Mm -hmm. thing is. It has claws. I don't know. And then an Anacreon ship descending toward the surface. And she runs back to the, the colony and shows Hugo the ship and they alert the Foundation. Uh, something that wasn't revealed in the simulations are how big a pussy these bishop's claws are. They're not. Re- no, they just, <laughs> just kind of fire in the air and they just they just run off, you know, and like in shows of intimidation. She is not afraid of them. I mean, by the end of the episode whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting. And yeah, it's it's a cool way to to introduce the new primary antagonist, like just to see the drive flume coming at you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. Plume. Um, and, and I like. The, the sense of scale here, I, I don't know how slow these slow ships are, but they're coming down real slow, right? They've got like two days or something before the ship even lands. Um, but yeah, maybe we should get over the council stuff because I'll talk more about this. Uh, the council debates what to do about the Anacreon gunships descending despite the Imperial Edict that the Terminus is off limits. Uh, Salvor tells them about the changes to the vault and tries to connect the two things, but she doesn't have any real conclusions so the council decides, hey, we're just going to call the Empire for help. And Salvor goes to the armory to try and prepare a defense should the Empire not help them. Yeah. Or really, I don't even know what how... the Empire could do at such short notice. But Right. Well, I mean, they do have the jump drives, which as far as I can tell is instantaneous yeah, travel. That's true. So they probably do a lot. It's just, again, like, uh, are they limited by their power or their political will at this point? Maybe a little bit right. of both at this point. Um, but there's a lot of other details like Hugo, even though he looks like he's like in the prime tw- late 20s, early 30s. He's actually over 70 years old because of different time dilation and cryo sleep concerns. I thought that was kind yeah. of neat. Um, and Is that also setting just up like future stuff. Is that setting up stuff with Gale? So that when we see Gale next time I and it's think five, it might be, you know, 50 it, years in it, the future and she looks the same. She's still. We'll yeah, I, I think that's actually a really smart take. I was just thinking of like they're trying to show different ways that like slow ships could work. Because I um, on the official podcast last week, they talked about how their idea of a slow ship is something that travels slower than light, but navigates through a system of predetermined gates. Like there are mm. stargates that might jump you mm. 5000 years and you have to travel six months of sublight. Kind of like getting off of an interstate, driving through the city, worming your way through the back roads, getting back onto another interstate. Yeah. So like it's a it's like you 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 do huge stri- uh, stretches of the the trips in just seconds, but to get to those pre stage interstellar highways, you have to drive. That's why it took like twenty years. You know, uh, it took it took like mm. twenty years of drive, like nineteen years to go go one uh, percent of the way, and the others happened. So I I also think it's another just kind of casual world building but uh it probably yeah. will probably will come in to, to gail's story as well yeah i would think so uh so our family helps salvor prepare our defense the weapons uh, apparently aren't well maintained because they've never really needed them the foundation tries to call the empire but they can't get a signal out apparently the anacrons will be here in 40 hours so salvor's mom goes to uh storage and pulls out the prime radiant and shows it to salvor and she asks her if she can make anything of it and 
I would say she likes what she sees, but she doesn't exactly know. And she can interact with it and spin it around, but she doesn't know really what it means. Yeah, it I'm, I'm glad that that went this way because yeah. I was about to like, if this is going to be like Jurassic Park, this is Unix. <laughs> I know this. And she just instantly. <laughs> this is psycho history. Then, I know this. Yeah. She's opened up the psycho cube and she just going to intuitively navigate it like they already did that with Gail, but she is already a next level uh, mathematician. Yeah, that makes so, like, sense. Having her kind of like, oh, yeah. Yeah, this kind of no, it doesn't make sense. It wasn't intuition or like some genetic uh, predisposition right. toward psychohistory. Right. Yeah, that was learned and yeah. studied. And I, I thought they were, and I'm like, oh god, they're they're, they're going to they're shortcutting a little too much if they're going to do that. But no, so thank God, thank God. There's still the possibility that you know whatever affinity she has for this thing is tied into what makes her special beyond just you know the the null field stuff. Oh, 100%. Um, I, I think she is like they're, they're very much denying. She wants to deny it this whole episode. Look, I'm I'm unique. I'm different. But that just makes me different, not special. I still right. think she is special and we'll see why later, I assume. But for now, yeah, yeah they're not just going to jump right into that. And I think there's a lot of this will we'll get into this more in feedback. There's a lot of people drawing conclusions from embryos being withdrawn and ages of characters and starting to line up like, oh, could this be the child of this person or perhaps this person? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone can say for certain, but like, yeah, there is something. I also wonder if their parents have done her a service by keeping this under wraps because like she said a whole bunch of stuff at this council meeting that the other counselors just took as like just delusion. But if they knew yeah. that she was like immune to the null field, maybe you sit up and take a little bit of notice of the person speculating on the artifact trying to protect or warn you, you know? Yeah. Uh, I was trying to track like the the disposition of this prime radiant. Because wasn't Gail given the prime radiant last episode, but then she got jettisoned from the ship, presumably without it. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, think I don't think she custody. had that in her pocket. It's either in her office or, or Harry's at office, and neither one of those were occupying it at the end of the last episode. So, uh, And they do explain, I think they explain it in this um, episode where her mother took, she says she took it from Harry Selden's office the night after his funeral. So it must have been like yeah. almost immediately after what we saw. Yeah, but you do wonder if there's like any alterations or changes or something because that's like there's a gap between the night of his funeral and the night he died. Um, and it and Ray's really just be... still like there's we have no idea what happened after he shoved her in that tube. Like, yeah. Was there a trial? Did they shove him out the airlock? Was he right. able to go back to the quarters and like plug in a few changes into the old Selden plan? Like, uh, yeah, they they have to address that eventually. Have to. Yeah, and then this. Prime Radiant, where it is at any given moment, isn't something Harry really could have predicted. So, right. like, he doesn't work on those scales. So, I, I don't know if, like, Salvor connecting with the Radiant is anything that's going to disrupt a plan that's in motion. Uh, but we'll see more in the future. So, Salvor goes over to Hugo and tells him about the failed comms. She suggests that he leave, and he suggests she leave. Everybody seems to want to leave. <laughs> uh, I want Hugo to leave and you you to leave with Hugo and all that. She has to protect people. So she wants to stay behind uh, later that night. She gets out of bed and goes to the vault. She sees the same child running around and chases him into the slow ship again. This time she finds the Bishop's claw with an arrow in its back and she is surrounded by an Acreons. 
Yeah, a whole bunch of advanced scouts apparently just set up right underneath their noses. Um, yeah, I mean, did they come from the other side of the planet? Did they just land outside of the the view? I feel like they're advanced scouts because they've been mm-hmm. here. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. It's like per- particular how they got there. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, but it's going to be interesting to kind of find out. I'm assuming next episode. Uh, and there's also this like key like in Gail's narration where she's like, if you pay attention to the patterns, we can presage what happens next. Uh, to be alive is to know ghosts, and we can hear the whispers. I'm wondering what pattern they're alluding to. Like, is there some kind of greater f- fulfillment of the emperor's balking at transition of power that's going on in the barbarian kingdoms? Is there need to be a transition in power from the foundation leaders to people who are less like, is, is this an attempt by Harry to course correct from like, well, I need them to martyr me and kind of be deified, but not that much deified. So you have a, a generation like uh Salver, uh Salver Harden that said, Hey, I didn't know this guy. He ain't mm-hmm. nothing to me. Like, do you need something to kind of bring that back? I, I wonder, uh, that's the thing when I, uh, that, that uh, is the biggest question in my mind or what events are presaging? What, what have we seen so far? is going to explain to us how the next things are going to happen. I think that's uh, something I'm on the lookout for. Yeah. Um, it could be as simple as uh, sort of revenge. You know, I mean, if we think back to last episode, the ghosts of the dead are certainly these Anacreons, right? Inhabiting the skeletons that were once our homes, the slow ship. It's all, you know, very literal in this, in this case too. But then you look at like, the patterns of human history um very few times do people turn the other cheek right instead they'll strike back and i think that's right it could be part of what they're hinting at here is this is this is revenge somehow um for what the emperor did it's such a weird juxtaposition between a spacefaring civilization and people who just use bow and arrows yeah like i wonder you know, it's a concept I've seen before, like, uh, you know, uh, in the Warhammer uh, universe, like there are worlds that are uh, they called feudal, feudal or agrarian worlds where they don't bother to give them technology because they just grow wheat. Your, your whole planet just grows wheat for a trillion people. And I, I don't give a shit if you have even indoor plumbing, man. Like, mm-hmm. I wonder if there's some of like the emperors like treats these people like they're literally nomads. Like their technology is like below 20th century earth technology and they are used for something else. Like they have some resource that they extract and the empire gives them no benefit. But then how do they fly starships? I, but yeah. it's also a way to like you could like these are a threat to the terminus people because they don't have any weapons. Mm-hmm. But like not a threat that would be crazy hard to, you know, like a little bit of technology and, uh, you know automatic weapons and these guys are going to be in some body armor and then they're pretty much shit out of luck. Right. So I, I'm it's, yeah. it's interesting scaling of the threat. And I think it sets us up for a more exciting uh, future for what's happening on Terminus. I think up until yeah. now, it's been a lot of setup and with the introduction of some, you know, drama or friction here, uh, it's going to be a lot more interesting to see what happens on Terminus going forward and with the foundation. I agree. And also the other thing is, I don't know if these bows are literally bows or maybe they're like Wookiee bow casters or like laser bows. Sure. They're like, they just look primitive, but they're actually highly sophisticated in advance. Although I guess 
that bishop's claw had a real ass arrow stuck in it yeah so it's a bow with a laser sight <laughs> if they're plasma arrows they're they're not doing a great job because you can just pull them out pull them mm-hmm. out of a weird spider cat yeah uh that's the episode uh yeah well we have quite a large feedback uh, a lot of people want to talk about the show it turns out jim uh if you like to add to it it's foundation at baldmove.com that's how you get considered for show feedback uh like i said we got a bunch so in fact we might we might have so much that we like walking dead split this off from the main podcast because jim and i took a 50 minute episode and turned it into an hour and a half podcast just by ourselves We'll let yeah. all you guys in. Who knows? Three hour podcast. Uh, ah, that's a lot. We, we, we might have to split the feedback off to a, a later in the week podcast. We'll see. But right now we'll see what we end up. Oh, also, Jim and I had a little sidebar before we recorded about book spoilers because we got a, uh, you know, more than a smattering, but less than a majority of like book spoiler type emails. And Jim has only read the one book. I've read the f- initial three, but it's been 20 plus years. I think right now uh, we are going to try to go into the rest of the season without any more book spoilers than we've got. And there's like, you know, so so anything that you know from like the uh, the uh, the prequels or the sequels or stuff like that, um, I'm going to try to to filter out. Um, we might course correct in season two. We might decide to do like Game of Thrones and just fuck it, read all the books and try to become an expert and have a separate book spoilers from show, you know, discussion. Uh, but right now we're going to go this season. We're just going to since, since we have so, so little, we're going to just go with, with with the show only. All right. Yeah, I don't know that we could um, tell what spoilers versus speculation are uh, in the first place, right. but also I, I kind of want to watch this show. I'm enjoying the show so much that I don't want to spoil myself too much on it. Plus, it's hard for me because, like, if I haven't read the books, like, it's hard for me to tell the difference because, like, people get things wrong. Like, people send me stuff all the time, yeah. like in Game of Thrones, where it's like they just remembered something wrong or they transposed a character in their mind. And I have no way to, to check that stuff out. On the other hand, I also know that there are some things that are discussed in the feedback that are pretty on the nose. But on the other hand, the show is definitely kind of laying tracks or like they're not saying, oh, because of the books, it's they're saying I noticed this, that and the other. It's it's a it's a fine line. And uh, yeah. in my in, in my mind, if you can substantiate your point just using show facts and things that happen in the show, then it's probably something that we're going to read on the show and talk about. If you have to be like, well, I think this is going to happen because in the books, you know, Demerzel had three legs and seven eyeballs. And that that's a significant number because in the prequels. Uh, OK, well. That there's there's probably other there's probably other podcasts that will they'll indulge in that, but but not us. Again, yeah. we might change our mind, uh, but that's just how we feel right now. Um, so we'll mm-hmm. we'll see how it goes. All right, we're coming back. Foundation at baldmove.com. First up, uh Bill D says uh a space elevator like conveyance does appear in one of Asimov's expanded works. We talked about me not being familiar with like the concept of space elevator. Um, he says, while Asimov attributed most things to atomics in his first few books, gravitics became the science magic of choice in the later works. Apparently, there's something hmm. involving a, a space elevator and gravitics. Um, okay. During the official podcast for Foundation, David Goyer mentions the slow boat determinus. He name checks the ship and its capabilities. It's apparently subluminal, and he claims to have sweat the math on it. They've also had some conversations on Rach's jacket and the costuming department. It's worth a quick listen, probably, though, not as entertaining as your coverage. I actually think the official podcast is great. It doesn't go yeah. nearly in as much depth as far as the themes and stuff, but it's it does go 
it's, it's good for stuff like this. And, I, and and like I said, I think that my understanding of it, it's subluminal, but with like jump gates, like like interstellar highways, because subluminal this. I, I mean, I know the dimensions of the Milky Way galaxy. It's 100,000 light years across. So from the mm-hmm. core to the edge, if you take it literally, it's going to be 50,000 light years. Subluminal. That's that's at least 50,000 year trip. And that did not happen. No. So. With, you know, there there were some jump gates. It's just they don't have the ability to just rip a hole in time and space wherever they're at and go right there instantaneously like the Imperial jump drives do. Um, so thanks for those clarifications and some some uh, details, Bill. Uh, moving on to Victoria. I just watched the first two episodes of Foundation and listened to your podcast covering them. And I've had some thoughts on the sequence of events surrounding Harry's death. I think Aaron is right, and that's a Dumbledore Snape type situation in the hints in the sense that Harry asked Raish to kill him. I don't know if I believe Harry was already dying from something else, although I did clock the pill thing and the look at dinner between him and Raish too. Mm-hmm. I thought the pill was probably just one of the million things I have to take to stay alive on the ship, and the look was meant to help build the tension between them. Nobody I else took a pill. That's the thing. And like yet that that's that's i can't disprove that but like the rebuttal is like well this is a movie and everything they show us means something um so like if it was just like everybody taking a pill this is a very fucking weird way to to show that so i still think think, your first instinct is right yeah 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 uh but i do think he wanted to die continuing Mm -hmm. victoria's point so that the rest of the colony crew would come together and have another concrete reason to follow the plan with renewed religiosity and to deify selden and of course we know from this episode that shit kind of worked according to plan apparently yeah i think race was on the plan from the beginning but gail was not so when she burst in the door before the act was complete she threw a huge wrench in the plan which probably included giving race time to get away or cover his tracks i kind of agree with that although i think race knew the plan and but like her like like when i watched that show again and her like saying that like the numbers were in doubt to some extent that sent him into a panic because it's one thing to like throw stuff away on a sure thing that you believe in it's another it's like oh what if there's a probability and now that he's so because whatever happens gail going bye-bye was going to be one of those things i think he knew he was never going to get all of those nice things that he wanted he wanted it all with her right <laughs> Yeah, Harry Selden is a martyr, and Raish's penis is a martyr as well. Yes, Raish, Raish took one for the, <laughs> the, the team, yeah. Uh, following the Harry Potter reference, she would have been like Harry hiding in the astronomy tower, but only if he jumped out before Snape had a chance to take over for Malfoy and some random Death Eater had done the deed in killing Dumbledore. It's very messy, is what she's saying. Basically, she forced Raish to act quickly to get her safety before the Harry Selden is dead alarm went off, notifying the ship <laughs> what went down. I think he threw the knife in her with the escape pod because he didn't have time to clean it or hide it after she ran in. Uh, I, like I said, I, I think it's more, man, I, I wish we knew more about it. I wish there was some oblique reference that the empire made about, you know, Harry Selden being gone and by his own people or something like that to kind of, because we don't have anything yeah. to go on on that. Like we verified the DNA match on the, the blood or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But also, where the hell is she going? I know you guys mentioned maybe she's on her way back to Trantor, but I didn't really get that vibe that Raish punched any specific coordinates before shooting her off to space. But I guess we'll find out soon enough. Like I said, framing framing her from Selden and sending her, it made sense to send her to Trantor because like that's one way to get her back in good graces with the Empire for mm-hmm. some future use. And they already established that there's like some kind of double agent guy who 
might be able to facilitate that. Um, maybe he's secretly working for Harry. The other thing is like, she could just be there. There's a point in this episode where the mother, uh, Mrs. Uh, uh, Harden said, there's only two people on that ship that understood this thing I'm holding right now. One is Harry Seldon's dead. And the other is Gail, which she inexplicably didn't allow. But like it, part of me says that maybe she's in that fucking thing in the stasis chamber. That like she's waiting and they use the they use the word. They didn't say it's activating. It's turning on. They said it is waking up, Mm -hmm. which they've already shown her waking up in some other kind of like I I feel like that that's that's where they're going with this. So she's going to be able to come out and maybe like decode the the psychohistory for the rest of his adherence. But I don't know why you would do that. I don't know why you wouldn't leave her on the, the ship. Uh as, all right, crazy theory time. Is yeah. there any chance that this Anacreon invasion is actually Gale coming to the Foundation with the assistance from the Anacreons? Holy shit. <laughs> but yeah, I don't. Yeah, that could be cool. That she actually soft landed over Anacreon, took the whole place over as psycho history and is coming back to like be the right? muscle. I don't that know that you desperately can need. accomplish that in 35 years, but maybe. Uh, I mean, they, they seem like they've well on their way to starting a real state religion around Harry Seldon in the same amount of time. And they took the True. best and brightest from all the scientists, like, you know, presumably secular people that you could gather. I uh, think it's out there, but it's a possibility. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, I don't know. Well, thanks for your comments, Victoria. We'll see what happens. Uh, Jim steps forward with some some praise and uh, at least two criticisms. So I'm going to try to defend the show from. Okay. says, I am so intrigued with the Empire Day Dusk uh, cycle. I'm guessing they must be 30 years apart in age. Uh, so if you're trained yeah. from 0 to 30, you rule from 30 to 60 and provide wide count, wise counsel to yourself from 60 to 90, and 90 are killed and another clone, Dawn, is born. It also seems that you learn to be cruel as Dawn, to rule with an iron fist as day, and then soften as you age into dusk. It's hard Roughly. to say that for sure because we saw a a a, a singular inflection point and in mm-hmm. the destruction of Cleon on the first legacy here. So, like, I don't know. Is the emperor always like you know? Uh, clearly, they're not big on overthinking the stick in the carrot and the stick metaphor. Yeah, but uh, it's it's hard to say. It does seem like that's part of it, though. Like you're mm-hmm. you're idealist as the dawn, you're pragmatic as day. And then you're back to kind of like, ah, uh, shouldn't should we at least find a better way as dusk, which uh, probably is, you know, Asimov and, and Goyer and everybody trying to say something about uh, humans in general. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, this is an intriguing way to have the same characters exist for millennia. Yeah, I agree. I, I fucking love this idea. I wonder if it's going to survive the collapse of the empire, like, or what they'll do once the empire collapses, how they'll maintain that, you know, antagonist well, succession. that's so interesting that they built up here. I know we're jumping around like 400 years an episode, so maybe uh, this will happen next episode, but we have at least 500 years according to psycho history. Uh, before mm-hmm. that happens. So I think we'll get a lot more Emperor before then. Uh, On to the criticisms. I think the Sky Bridge was too vulnerable to attack. Two men with yeah. internal bombs are able to collapse the entire structure, killing 100 million people. I think the engineers would have designed and constructed a system with redundancies to prevent progressive collapse. If it's not one of the easiest predictions, that it would be someday uh, taken down by terrorists. Um, 
I think this is true. But also, do you know how much fucking devastation a single person with a battery operated angle grinder could do to the infrastructure of like the United States? Like you can in like two minutes take down almost any cell phone tower or communication tower you want. Uh, you could take down a good mm. section of high tension power lines and, and potentially uh, paralyze a region. Uh, why doesn't that happen? Because by and large, people are okay with how things are going. Again, by and large, and there's not enough people. There's not people just tearing shit up for no, just to watch, want to watch something burn. Um, we're privileged to have that state of political instability. If if we had to heavily militarize our fucking infrastructure and harden it against terrorist attack, our world would look a hell, a hell of a lot different. So it's easy to say, just like, it's like, well, fuck, man, how hard was it to predict that someone to fly planes into the buildings? It's fucking pretty hard to predict shit like that. And it's not something that we should build our, uh, organize our society around. So I don't know. Like, again, yeah, 100, but like with 8 trillion people, what does that even mean? That's like a thousand people dying. Uh, to some that's a tragedy for sure right but yeah so I, I, that's the other perspective like I think the empire just thought their 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 Pax Imperial would would rule the day and that people would respect and enjoy it yeah never See? overestimate uh, the, the potential for failure of human ego and I think yeah the emperor embodies ego as much as anything else yeah I mean, it's just like there's just so many areas where we're vulnerable to attack if people wanted to and it's just that people don't. So that and I think well, they yeah. also did a pretty good job of showing that this was a particular like smuggling that substance required some advanced research that's very hard to source and was very careful. Like, because think about like where we're at with like what we know from the Snowden leaks as far as like the kind of intelligence that they gather on our day. Like imagine what the Empire could do with faster light communication and predictive engines and stuff. It could be that they just can solve most crimes against the state before they happen. And this was just like an unprecedented uh, uh, amount of like, you know, using proxies and cat's paws and and false purchases and false flags to 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 pull it off. Um, and keystring. So let's, let's not overlook the massive amount of keystring that must have been so happening much there. keystring of volatile chemicals to make those <laughs> little wrist bombs. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I thought it was fine. Uh, secondly, he says, I find it completely unbelievable. There's a field of math so complex. That only two people out of eight trillion understand it. It takes a far more brilliant mind to discover, develop a field of math than it does to learn it from someone who understands it. Harry should have had dozens of students that uh, were learning the math from him and would be in a good position to test his mathematical model. So, like, I think this is true, but I also think you're misunderstanding what happened in the plot. Harry mm -hmm. is a prestigious teacher at a prestigious university of this subject he has dozens and dozens if not hundreds of students of this science but they're all his like refer as his acolytes mm -hmm. like the imp like like harry putting all of his personal students up as like oh yeah this is a guy like yeah, this like, is my this, mom the and she says i'm very good looking <laughs> yeah it's like socrates calling all the students to, to testify why should he shouldn't have to drink hemlock it's like yeah okay can you find someone right. who's not fucking brainwashed so having Gale, who is an outsider, but it's also a talented mathematician that the Empire felt like they got before Harry got her claws into, even though he was using psychohistory, that she was the perfect witness, you know, yeah, that, that she's got as, yeah, like everything in her being is going to tell her to discredit Harry. If she doesn't, then that's that's more valuable 
a testimony. So it's not that like there's not a math. Like even Harry says, like I could explain it to someone. I just need someone that's conversant and probabilistic, you know, mathematical mechanics. Uh, so those people are rare. And also sometimes there are parts like when Albert Einstein came up with relativity, there might have only been a handful of people in the whole fucking world in those first few years as he was working out uh, special and general relativity that really could grapple and understand that subject, much less explain it to layman. And psychohistory is one of those things where it's like, it is a very recent thing. And I don't think there is just tons and tons of people in the galaxy that, that, that know about it and, and engage with it seriously. So hmm. I don't know if that helps or if it's just me being apologetic for a show that I'm in the tank for, but, uh, Brian R says, uh, as far as the warden in the 35 plus year timeline, she's got to be Gail Zygote. They removed from the ship, right? This timeline seems to add up with the ability for Gail to awaken during the jump in episode one. And it seems mm. related to the ability of the warden to approach the vault and maybe hereditary. She does have parents, though. Are they biological parents or are they? She doesn't remember parents? Harry. So there's no fucking way she could remember who she popped out of. Right. Um, the, the other lady who's, who's carrying the space baby to full term is another possibility that something in the, Mm -hmm. the poison milk and the radiation, uh, (laughs) made her superhuman or something. Uh Although someone pointed out that her conspicuously drinking wine, uh, at the meal afterwards was a sign that she had listened to Gail and went ahead and got her embryo yoinked. Oh, I thought she was just an asshole. Um, Oh, the she's like, well, poison milk and radiation. What's the <laughs> right. uh, what's the Chardonnay going to do? Glug, glug. Yeah, I guess yeah. you could take it that way. Um, but yeah, there's probably something to the star child children uh, uh, and, and being born special. Yeah. Um, as far as eat uh, the the robot nursemaid, she may be trusted by the emperors because she originally installed them and facilitated the whole ongoing clone rule system. Two options for motivation, both based on my theory that she understands psychohistory because, you know, robots and math. Uh, she could be the antagonist. What better way to avenge her race's genocide than to manipulate the empire into 30 years, 30,000 years of devastation and destruction? Mm-hmm. Uh, she chose him because he would put the empire in a course for collapse and possibly even mastermind the bombing of the space elevator to accelerate the collapse. That's interesting. I never took her as an active architect for this doom, but she could be. She could be. Um, I, I don't I don't think. She chose the Cleon, like the first, uh, where to start this cloning thing. I think Cleon chose, chose her, and then and then maybe it became a, a thing where now she's, you know, shaping things. But that's just the impression did she I get. Maneuver events, and oh to, yeah, to I have, think she totally that's the thing. Could. Like, did she did she like make sure that Cleon is Cleon, Cleon is the one that won the I guess power struggles that used to be a big part of the dynasties collapsing and reforming. Uh, yeah, maybe other the other possibility Brian identifies is as a protagonist. She installed the emperor to create the circumstances to bring Harry Seldon about and arrange for him to learn psychohistory that he might act to shorten those 30,000 years of chaos that she saw coming inevitably a long time ago. It's this scenario where she was the human sympathizer uh, in the war, uh, echoing Harry's thoughts of, you know, there's always a sympathizer, even the most embittered last android left. It's interesting. Uh, I, you know, we've talked, we've, said stuff about robots and Asimov's work and specifically in foundation. Um, it, I don't know how accurate it is. I've only read the first book it, that would make the robot, the main character of foundation. 
the main protagonist to Foundation. I don't know that that's where they're going with it. Um, but and that would be the effect the books, of that. It's not, it wouldn't be a crazy idea to do it on the show. You know, we talked about right. like just in like Star Wars, uh, C3PO and R2D2 are the con, they're not the main protagonists, but they're the cont- continuity right. throughout the series. Um, you know, just this robot can, can do that because they don't ever age and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, we'll they also see. don't manipulate the, the plot very much, where, you know, right. in this scenario, Demerzel would be the main protagonist. Um, and I, I, I'm not saying they won't do it. I'm just saying that would be different from my experience with that first book, certainly. All right. Let's move on to Alex E. Says, I was a little disappointed in the lack of explanation for Harry's death uh, that we're given in the first several episodes. I'm fine with skipping over to early relationship details of Raish and Gale because everybody's familiar with that human experience. But I feel like we're owed a little more setup to go from Harry gets details about Raish's father uh, wrong. Yada, yada, yada. The Raish murders Harry in cold blood. I assume yeah. we're going to get some retconning. In the next few episodes, to fill in some of the blanks, but it feels like a mark of a poor show. One of the things that made Game of Thrones great was when a central character was unexpectedly killed. It always had a reason it made sense. Everyone was surprised when Ned Stark was killed because he's the hero, and yet nobody was surprised because it made sense narratively. The way Foundation handled uh, Harry's death seems more like a tropey trick to keep you coming back next week. The kind of uh, the network television uses a lot. How do you guys feel about the way they handle the reveal and any concerns with long plot lines that the show will continue to skip over uh, the narrative details thereof? I'm um, fine with it. Is it keep, keep in mind, this is the first episode, right? This is all set up. None of this stuff is like. Yes, it, it, I, I don't know. I, I guess I don't feel the same way about something that happens in episode one to, to set up future events versus something that happens at the end of the season as like a big um, event. So that's how I'm looking at it. What do you think? I think so too. I think that um, we've said this a bunch on other podcasts, like uh, there's a bad way to do things and there's a good way to do things. There's a bad way they handle time skips and ones that are just pointless and are confusing for the sake of confusing um, and to hide shitty plot lines or to, to hide how kind of, straightforward and hackneyed a plot line is by chopping it up and doing it in a certain order uh, that you can like, you know, like my preferences clear, tells things in chronological order, play with all your cards face up mm-hmm. and, you know, see where the, the, see where everything falls, you know, on the other hand, if you do it well, like who complains that Quentin Tarantino didn't tell a sequential story in Pulp Fiction, you know, he got right. a particular effect because our, our affections and feelings with people, um, are established in different points of time. And so like what may be the protagonist in one scene is the antagonist in the next. And like that gets a different feeling. It evokes a different sensation from the, 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 the viewer. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't know, it's too early to see if this stuff is because like, I'll be fine at the end of the season and be like, you know what? This is a pretty vanilla plot and Goyer gussied it up with a bunch of time jumps and stuff to hide from the fact. I'll say that if it's, if that's what it turns out to be. But like it's just like like Jim said, it's too early. Um, these so. can be the hallmarks of a shitty show. Like this could be like Ryan Murphy just being lazy yeah. on American Horror Story, or it could be them telling a very tough story that spans a thousand years and has seventeen dozen characters in it. You know, and we've never seen something like this on television before, so there's no template for it. Yeah, uh, and there could be we'll, mistakes we'll made see. during that process, but there could also be um, 
I do think we will get more information. It's not, they're not just going to leave that hanging there. I mean, Raish is a big question mark at this point. And I would, I will be disappointed if we get significantly into uh, this first season, maybe toward the end. And we haven't learned anything more about that. Right. Uh, Because I do think it would be a mistake, but for now I'm just kind of letting the mystery be. (laughs) Betting on the uh, leftovers, Lindelof, eh? Mm Mm-hmm. All right, moving on to Allie. Hey, guys, it seems like Gail's brief time spent awake during her initial journey has caused some kind of disruption to her experience of space time with her mind and body being on, quote unquote, different trips. In both episodes, she uh, seems to comment on significant events before they occur. And at first, she notes that there's something wrong with the star bridge before the attacks uh, in the same sense mm-hmm. as she sensed that something was wrong before Harry was killed in episode two. Well, I haven't gone back to time it. The differential seems roughly on par with the duration of the scene in which she wakes up, implying that her mind skipped ahead when this happened. I don't know if it's like you can set your watch by it that way, but it is. She does seem to have. I don't know. Maybe it's uh, and they hit it a little. I don't think we talked about the fact that she realized she got a prime wrong. She calculated a prime wrong. And then that mm-hmm. caused her to like reevaluate her calculations and which. I, I don't think she, I, yeah, it's tough to say what she actually saw that something was wrong or she was just like concerned about her calculations and went back to check them and Harry's being murdered in the timecube office, you know? Um, but the, 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 the star bridge for sure. There's something about her having a, a, a sixth sense. Maybe are they connecting her with Salvor at all? Because Salvor's doing similar things, right? Having well, they not they exactly premonitions, but something is wrong. Feelings while laying in bed and getting up, and and they were both identified by their loved ones and their mothers in this case as being special. Yeah, um, not just unique, but like you know, special for a special purpose. So mm-hmm. I think they are definitely drawing a conclusion, and I think that maybe some of the zygote theories have some legs here. Um, Allie continues and says, this is an interesting counterpoint, if so, to Selden's predictive ability. Both are impressionistic programs with some degree of uncertainty, are clearest around events of particular significance, and make similarly monkey paw-esque in their limited ability to influence the outcomes of what they can predict. Hers because there's not enough time, his because there's too much of it. They effectively function as near and far-sighted versions of seeing the future. It'll be interesting to see how the show plays with that. It's also... The other thing is like Harry's is probabilistic mathematic over large scales. Her seems to be very intuitive and uh, actions of an individual. Like Harry couldn't predict the bombing the star bridge. She sensed something was wrong. Uh, Harry thought he would die before he got on the ship, but she knew that there was something. So, so yeah, you're right. It's like looking at two different ends of the telescope kind of. It's one of the main things I love about this show so far is they are doing that in almost every regard. They're, they're, you know, the idea of a clone is longevity and and continuity, but it's also uh, being myopic and stagnation, right? There's like, there are multiple elements to all of the features of this universe that they're looking through both ends of that. Yeah, and, and as, as Ali points out in her conclusion, the other thing is like she is from a, descendant of seers like people that claim to be able to see the future now we don't know if that's if if, if that's like religion in the sense that astrology is religion Mm -hmm. um 
but or if that's like religion in the sense of like Game of Thrones, like, when, you know, there's actually real shit, you know, real forces that we don't understand moving. Um, it would be ironic that, that complicates it. The religion that she comes from can't actually see the future, or predict anything. And she rejects that and thereby ends up in some space uh, quantum bullshit that separates her mind from her body. And she can now see into the future. <laughs> there's like an irony to rejecting the thing you thought would give you that ability and then ending up with it mm-hmm. anyway. Uh, Sarah mentions, Hey guys, if you're interested in riding a space elevator, you can just head to Disney world. The entire premise <laughs> of the newly opened space 220 restaurant at Epcot is that the base is 220 miles above the earth. Diners ride a space elevator to get to the dining room. I uh, love your pod. Keep up the great work. Right, and I that's the, fucking so, cool. I, I, it is cool. I have to say, I love the shit that Disney does with their experiences and rides and stuff. Oh, yeah. The theming. Yeah. But it uh, is also it, hilarious at the same time. Like, oh, we took a two minute elevator, 220 <laughs> miles up. We uh, we talked about this on lunch a couple weeks ago, and I, I guess I misunderstood because I thought that you were essentially boarding a shuttle that flew up to the space station. If it's actually a space elevator. How do they fucking make that look like it is on the outside? Because you don't see like the changes going up into infinity, right? You know, yeah. or maybe they do. Maybe they have some kind of force perspective, like tower that just kind of disappears into a vanishing point. Um, I don't know. That seems pretty. That'd be pretty fucking cool either way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jay says Asimov was my favorite author as a child, but Aaron, you give him too much credit. Arthur C. Clarke was the one who said any advanced, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And he's also the one who suggested putting communication satellites in geosynchronous orbit. Damn. You're right. I think what I did is I did a little, I did quite a bit of research into Clark when I did that 2001 podcast we did last yeah. month. And I feel like I just kind of like blended the details with the Asimov details that I did from the, my pre-scouting uh, foundation. And it just made a mess. Just made a just made a composite nerdy ass golden age sci-fi <laughs> author in my head. Uh, so I appreciate the correction. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll try to get it straight going forward. Uh, J Cube says if they keep going at the pace they are and filling in the story for time periods in the book uh, that the book completely skips, it would seem that they may be able to get three or four seasons just from book one. If I mean, That's they scary. could. They could take each of those mini books and probably blow it into a decent sized season of television. But what's the bad side of that, Jim? What do they get? There are a lot of books. There are a lot of books. I don't think they can do if if they do like three or four seasons with the first book, they're going to have to zip through the others. And I can't imagine that they're any less dense than the first one. Unless unless they're planning on just doing the fir- the main three books and just bringing in like little just vignettes from Maybe. the prequels yeah. and the sequels to kind of like fill in things like this Demerzel stuff. That could be so interesting. I, I, I think the pace is going to like once they establish stuff that you, you, the pace will kick, will kick up and we'll see how that goes. But uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah. like I said, I've, I've seen shows where the pacing is glacial and it's amazing and it's thrilling and it's cool. And I've seen it where like it just damn near kills the narrative pace. So we'll have to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, I must say I'm aware of the mystery box of the time vault in the show, but hopefully it'll take us to the same rough place in the books, just in a different way. I, yeah, I think I, assume. I, I, I think that's all going to collapse in the next episode into the same thing, essentially. And I think the show looks as good as any sci-fi movie that's been released. The acting has yeah. been really good for the most part. Just have to keep reminding myself to be open to the drastic changes they have made and will sure 
continue to make to customize the the storyline changes for the series. That's the key. Like it's a different medium. Uh, and what works in books sometimes doesn't work on the screen. So yeah, s- smart, smart adapters know that. And we'll see, we'll see how Goyer does. Uh, final email from Josh H. I can't help but wonder if there's any intentional parallels between the empire's giant mural, not to mention the opening credits and the Tibetan Buddhist, uh, Buddhist uh, sand mandalas. Tibetan monks will create elaborate designs with intricate geometric geometric figures made only of brightly colored sand. There's no bonding agent or anything. The sand is just meticulously laid out grain by grain on a flat surface. Once completed, the design is ritualistically destroyed. The sand is collected and released in a river to rejoin nature. Going to speculate what the significance of the show would be, but the visual similarities make me think something's there. Any thoughts? I mean, I, I first became aware there's a practice, I think, in season two or three of House of Cards, where they had say, some monks yeah. at the White House making one of these things and then when the foyers mm-hmm. and it, it is striking. They almost use the exact same tools. They load up the sands and this like little funnel thing and they have these little sticks that vibrate it. They lay it out, like you said, great. And it seems very similar to what the Cleons are doing on the walls as well. Um, the, the only difference being. These murals, I think, are supposed to stand the test of time. It's very unusual to have an emperor yeah. obliterate one. And, but whereas, they do require maintenance, so there's you know right. some some element of that. Um, right. Yeah. The thing that really struck me, and I we didn't talk about it in the main podcast. I forgot to, but uh, the mural that Brother Dusk had just painted before. Mm-hmm. I guess 19 years before, right? <laughs> but mm-hmm. like just last episode for us um, is one of destruction. He painted the the devastation of the space bri- or the sky bridge. Space? Space bridge? Star bridge, I think. Star bridge, thank you. Uh, he painted that, right? And then he goes mm-hmm. in and he paints his other mural for the Brother Dawn uh, that is one of creation. And I... You know, it like we needed more reinforcement of that metaphor, but yeah, there's there's definitely like a a feeling of guilt that that he's got as he's painting this, right? Like he didn't do enough during his life to to warrant a life um, or to warrant the respect that he gets as a Cleon, maybe. Yeah, and something I learned in like doing the research on the religions of the Game of Thrones and uh, is that like you really get an immersive world when you don't like, just like, Hey, these guys are Catholics, but you take it like they're Catholics with a little bit of like Odinism and a little bit of like aspect worship from Zoroastrianism. And now you get something because otherwise it's like, Oh yeah, you, you you get like, Oh, these are just uh, medieval Catholics or, or these are space Catholics or whatever. Whereas if you blend it a little bit, then it feels like something that's why I think they do so great on the expanse with the Belter culture. Yeah. It's like Belter culture. Like what is the dominant culture? Like there's a little bit you can hear, but there's a little bit you can see in the art and in the clothes. Like, it's just very much a pastiche of, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, I, I, I guess, uh, the third world countries of 21st century. What if they went and just resettled in the asteroid belt and just blended and, and mixed and blended and mixed mm-hmm. for 300 years that's where you get like these really cool cultures. So it's not just literally a, a, a Tibetan monks man Mandela, but it's like that, but you know, like uh, the hieroglyphics of the Kings of Egypt to yeah. give you like a real kind of, Oh yeah, this feels like a, a unique kind of culture that's still believable. I think they're doing a really good job because like, again, I cannot say enough, all this world building 
is not in the books. None of this no. Klingon cloning stuff is in the books at all. And it makes it the protagonist and antagonist so much richer for it. So, and they're doing uh, stuff doing even with the visuals um, to reinforce that. Right. Like I, I think of, you know, how much uh, societies when they're confronted with new ideas morph and change, right. To adopt yeah. those new ideas into the old, like you look at Catholicism nowadays, it's nothing like it was 2000 years ago. Right. Um, and they reflect that in the mural itself, moving and changing over time. It's it's not something that's completely static. So they've they've got that imagery with the grains of sand and the stardust and the universal nature of everything embedded into the look of the show. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. It's like they call it concept syncreticism when you blend one religion to another to kind of like envelop or mesh it, like. You know, Christmas as the Roman holiday of Saturnalia, and it's also the Germanic holiday of uh, solstice, and it's all fused into this new thing when the Romans got really new religion. Uh, yeah. so it's it's all blended together. So uh, it it it's it's just it's like I said, all this stuff is um uh you don't need it in the show, but it certainly adds a lot of of richness and texture and makes like I, I think that also helps the suspension of the disbelief because like. Maybe you balk at psychohistory or something, but if the world li- just feels very real and lived in, then you kind of like give it extra credit, you know, mm-hmm. um, where some worlds feel a lot more fragile, where it's like, geez, you just tug a little bit of a thread and the whole th- fucking thing's going to collapse like like a yeah. space elevator. <laughs> uh, that's it. If you would like nice. to send us some more of your thoughts on foundation, uh, do so at foundation at baldmove.com. We'll, of course, be back next week with another in-depth look into episode four. Um. Yeah, I'm just. I'm really looking forward to see how time is developed as a character because if I know yeah. it's intimidating for a lot of people, but I think it's the most exciting thing about the the hugeness of the story they can tell. So, can't wait to see what everybody thinks about it next week. We'll see you here at the same time. Uh, until then, I'm Aaron and I'm Jim. See ya. <laughs>